0: This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 15. This is Writing Excuses, Poetic Structure, Part 1.
1: Fifteen minutes long.
0: Because you're in a hurry.
1: And this is Haiku. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. I'm Amal. And
2: I'm Howard.
0: (laughs) I I am not going to pause to count to see whether or not that was actually haiku. However... I
2: counted five times to make
1: sure. It is. (laughs) Our tagline is very accidentally a perfect haiku.
0: Oh, that's... That's beautiful.
1: That is so beautiful.
0: beautiful. Um, and, And thus, poetic structure, which... Amal will speak to us as part five of our eight-part series on poetry.
3: <laughs> yes. So poetic structure. So one of the things that we've been sort of, um, I feel like up until this point in this series, uh, I've been trying to talk about lots of underlying ideas about poetry, some things that are assumed, some things that are received and stuff like that, <clears throat> to kind of challenge and develop our ideas of what a poem is or can be. Um, But what I want to do in today's episode is talk about some much more recognizable poetic forms um, and, uh, and, and talk about how even though you don't need a poem to be structured in an explicit way that has been received with like centuries of lineage and baggage behind it in order for it to be a poem, it can be really fun to play with those forms all the same. So you absolutely do not need to write a sonnet in order to be writing a poem. You don't need to write a villanelle or a sestina or a limerick or a haiku for it to be a poem. But since we have these forms, I would love to actually talk about the forms themselves and how they can be not so much constraining as liberating sometimes, especially when you're just starting out writing poetry, and also to talk about uh, a revelation that I experienced about poetic structure that I received from one of my students while trying to teach a class on structure uh, when I was talking about sonnets. And what happened was this. I, uh, I was talking about how <clears throat> sonnets have gone through a series of transformations over time, the way that, uh, that, that the sonnet form tends to get taught at say an undergraduate English student level, is that it is 14 lines of uh, iambic pentameter with a rhyme scheme. But that there is a distinction that happened in the past. Once upon a time, Petrarch, an Italian poet, wrote in a certain rhyme scheme because Italian is a rhyme rich language. Uh, and so, you know, poets who were uh, wanting to write sonnets the way Petrarch did copied that scheme. But then Shakespeare comes along and Shakespeare, recognizing that English is a rhyme poor language, uh, changes the rhyme scheme of the sonnet. And instead of having a turn in the poem that happens in the middle, he has the turn come right at the end before that last couplet. All this sorts of stuff. And as I was going on and, and saying this in the class, a student absolutely geniusly interjected to say, so you're saying a sonnet is like a meme, and I said, oh my God, yes, a sonnet is a meme. And my mind exploded. And I thought this, this is the most, how could I not have seen it before? A sonnet is a meme. So is almost any poem that is a received form that you interact with and engage with and transform as you move forward. And then it occurred to me that there's actually a fantastic example of this. Um, in in that there there is a specific poem that has been memefied more than perhaps any other which is this is just to say by william carlos williams <laughs> mm-hmm. That was exactly
0: what i thought you were going to refer to
3: <laughs> and so here you have this poem you know this is the the plums poem if you, if you're not familiar with its actual title um if you literally just google this is just to say meme you will get the most beautiful panoply of transformations of, um, this, the Plum's poem. Um,
0: this is just London. to say that this is a podcast that you are probably saving to listen to later.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: Exactly, exactly. So this is what I want to kind of touch on, that even though the idea of a structure in a poem, of a rhyme scheme, of a specific meter, look essentially like constraints, like things that are going to limit your creativity, they are going to hamper you in your progress towards poetic majesty, they also can be tools of communication. And of of ultimately freedom um, as you engage with and transform them and contribute to a kind of accumulation of meaning around these poems. Shakespeare 100% did this with um, something like uh my mistress eyes are nothing like the sun where he takes this idea of like the sonnet as a sincere earnest love poem and one of its defining features is that you're going to itemize a kind of shopping list of your beloved's features and kind Mm -hmm. of sing the praises of each one and he just comes out and goes my mistress eyes are nothing like the sun coral is more red than her lips are red and just kind of goes down this sort of like seemingly nasty list of of ways of saying, meh, I, my lover is actually not that great. She's not a goddess. She's not got all this stuff. But, and yet I think my love more rare than any she belied with false compare, you know? And it's totally transforming the whole principle of the poem.
1: Yeah, I love, yeah. My, I've got a 19 year old daughter and uh she is constantly trying to show me, because now she's off at college, and so our, our most of our communication is done over text, and she will send me all these things she thinks are hilarious. And I say, no, they're not. Those are not remotely funny. What's wrong with you? And what we eventually figured out is uh, the, the root of this kind of massive generational gap between what I think is funny and what she thinks is funny is she but knows the mimetic structure behind everything that she is trying to share with me,
3: mm. right? And Ooh. so
1: it's not necessarily funny on its own. It's funny because someone is taking a known form and playing with it. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of, you know, that your brilliant student who who compared that to poetic structure is absolutely dead on. Uh, one of my favorite web comics is uh, Dinosaur Comics by Ryan North. Yes! And that is... He actually has what, what. what's brilliant about that one is that it's like six panels that are identical every single time. There are thousands upon thousands of comics that he has put out and they all have exactly the same visuals with different text. Mm-hmm. And one of them, in response to critiquers who are like, how can you possibly just use the same images over time? That's so boring. he He literally calls back to sonnet structure and says, no, the, the form is just the way in which you are saying something and allows you this incredible freedom of expression because you don't have to worry about all these other aspects of it.
2: You know, during the, the break between recording episodes, um, I posited, uh, what I now think is a possible doctoral thesis for someone who understands, (laughs) understands Poetry and oral tradition. And that was the idea that poetry with rhyme and meter is a checksum for the oral tradition. Well, in between episodes, I was reading up on the word meme uh, and Richard Dawkins' original interpretation of it, which is that it's a unit of information which, when exposed to humans, is easy for the humans to copy, easy for them to replicate. And so, yes these forms with meter and with rhyme it makes it easier for us to replicate them um, i I love that concept and the the idea that memes at some point you know like like Dan said I I have I have a 20 year old and a 26 year old and a 17 year old and they are regularly trying to show me things on their phones and no I don't want to look at your phone I just Do you want to tell me a story? No, I want you to have the experience of this meme unfolding for you. And uh, I guess, Dan, I'm fortunate in that I have a little bit more of the context because I regularly think they're funny.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of stories that we want people to tell us, uh, let's pause for the book of the week, uh, which is Resident Alien. And that was your suggestion, Howard.
2: Goodness! It's not a book. It's a television program, which is uh, airing now on Sci-Fi. Uh, it's based on a comic book, and it is about an alien who crash lands on Earth and who must take the form of a human in order to fit in, in order to complete his mission. Um, the The alien is played by Alan Tudyk, and in the very first episode, there is a scene where Alan Tudyk is watching law and order and trying to replicate the dialogue. I've got news (laughs) for you, Cosette. Rewind. I've got news for you, Cosette. Okay. Alan Tudyk pretending to be a human being is my new favorite jam. (laughs) Um, As of this recording, uh, the first four episodes are out. Um, It's funny in that the, the tagline that they've been using, um, is three, five syllable sets. Uh, it's the, uh, doctor, uh, excuse me, alien comedy, doctor dramedy, we all need right now. Uh
3: And I realized that
2: in the patterning of their marketing for it, they've created poetry, um, anyway, it's beautiful. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, sci-fi.com and it's called resident alien.
3: That sounds so great. I, I extremely want to watch it. <laughs> I love Alan Tudyk so much. Yeah, uh, and yeah. Alan Tudyk being sinister in particular is of, of great appeal to me. So I want to pick up on the last thing you were saying about pattern actually, um, and, and how that fits into this idea of poetic structure. Um, so a pattern is essentially a recognition of difference and repetition, right? And the, so often, you know, when we use a shorthand like rhyme scheme and stuff like that, what we're talking about is a pattern of difference and repetition. And that poetic forms are an orchestration of those kinds of differences. Mm. They have formed over time, they have different origins, different contexts that kind of gave rise to them, that each one can be its own mini lecture that I don't really want to get into because I wanna talk about structure more broadly. But I do wanna point out that when you look at a poetic form, I would encourage you to think about what is it suited for? The sonnet you know, comes out of a love poetry tradition. But something like the Villanelle, um, if you look at a Villanelle, thinking of a famous one, something like Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light uh, by Dylan Thomas, or um, uh, Mad Girl's Love Song by Sylvia Plath, I Think I Made You Up Inside My Head. You know, the thing that when you look at a Villanelle, um, the repetition of the refrain in it makes it peculiarly suited to themes of obsession, to themes of being, um, you know, caught up in some feeling or idea um, in a way that is different from something like a sonnet uh, where you kind of are building towards an argument and then a turn away from it. Um, or from a sestina, where you have this ludicrous form of like repeating six words in a different pattern every stanza, um, in a way that ultimately feels eclectic, or like um, a, a sort of pattering of rain, or something like that. So, yeah.
0: Sorry. Yeah. Oh no! You uh, continue your thought, and then I, I have a, a question. Thought.
3: Mm. So it's all this all this to say that um, different poetic. Can be can come out of a process that has suited them to a particular theme or topic, and then you can get a lot of mileage out of subverting that theme or topic. The way Shakespeare does with a love sonnet to make it slightly more sarcastic, or something like that.
0: This is so interesting to me. So one of the things that I I talk about, and it took me a while to to get to it, was um, was the idea of uh, repetition carrying importance. Mm. So in puppetry, uh, people have heard me talk before about head bobbing, which is where the, the puppet's head just bounces up and down. And the problem with that is that it carries no meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, not, it's not that the puppet's head is moving. That's not the problem. It's that it's, it's not pointing to anything. And part of this is because the way people are wired uh, when, when you're thinking about narration that, that someone who is droning is hard to listen to. But repetition also catches our interest. And this is, um, I think, related to how we were originally hardwired, which is that repetition is un- inherently unnatural. And so when you hear something repeating outside in the wild, that's important and that's something you should pay attention to. And when you're like, in prose, when you have accidental repetition, when, when something and a sentence is awkward because of the accidental repetition, it's because it's pointing to the wrong thing. So my question is, after all of that, is one of the things, like, it sounds like what you're talking about with this, with these different forms being well-suited to different things, it is to some degree because of where that repetition happens, because of what it's pointing at. It, am I am I
3: getting that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Completely. And I love the um, example of... Uh, accidental repetition or an um, unintentional repetition that happens in prose, because the uh, there's a corollary to that, which I find really fascinating. Um, if Those of you who did the night brain exercise might <clears throat> might find this interesting to, to muse on if you look at the results of what you did. When I see people do the night brain exercise, there are a few things that kind of come up, that recur um, that in, in the shape that they're unguarded unselfconscious thoughts take as they're trying to write past um a snag or something and one of them is a sort of chanting repetition that Mm. as they're writing something that is poetic they'll find themselves repeating a sentence over and over again as if the repetition itself is going to bring them into a more poetic affect and it works it absolutely works because the intention is there um off the top of my head i think of something like uh in T. S. Eliot's um, "The Hollow Men," where it ends with "This is how the world ends. This is how the world ends. This is how the world ends," not with a bang, but with a whimper. Mm. You know, and you need that that repetition, that accumulation, essentially, of a kind of storm gathering.
0: That's so amazing. Um, I I cannot wait for us to get to uh, part two, where you're talking about the without constraints. Mm. So so do you want to slide us into homework so we can...
3: So your homework for today is to essentially write a poem with a form. So uh, write either three haiku or one villanelle. Um, You can look up the constraints of these respective forms. Uh, They are widely available online. And I want you to pay attention to the demands of the form and consider how those constraints that you're experiencing can actually inspire the theme of a poem or a certain mode of poetic expression. Um, If those particular two forms don't speak to you, go for another one. But it has to be an established traditional form that you are engaging with from our contemporary
0: present moment. This is amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, You are out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production. Jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of